Republican presidential race in America. Has anybody else been enjoying that? Anybody here? Yes? Okay, awesome. Uh, Enjoying it and also being a little bit alarmed by it, I've got to say. Um, The fights have been ferocious. The characters have been fantastic. Um, I know it's just, if there are any Americans here, I know it's just rank Australian prejudice. But I find it very funny that one of the key contenders is a man named Newt Gindrich. Does he know that's the name of a lizard? It, yeah, anyway, uh, one of the really funny things about, or really interesting things about American presidential campaigns is the kind of rhetoric you get um, about America, especially in relation to the rest of the world. Uh, listen to what Mitt Romney, the Republican frontrunner, listen to what he said at an earlier primary. It's a choice between two different destinies for America. President Obama wants to fundamentally transform our country. We want to restore to America the founding principles that made this country great and the hope of the earth. The hope of the earth. Really? I'm no America hater, but this kind of... uh, this kind of rhetoric strikes me as a bit over the top, actually, um, but maybe I'm just Australian. Um, that said, I think we should be honest. I think we should be honest and, and, and just see that this kind of rhetoric is actually a darn sight more reasonable than what Jesus says in the passage before us this evening from the Sermon on the Mount. Because there, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, which would be great if you had open, um, we'll, we'll be looking at it, Jesus points the finger not at a country, not at a king, not even as we might have expected him to do, not even at himself, but at his followers. And he says, the hope of the earth is you. And that's a thought that it's kind of tricky to know what to do with. And I think it really challenges us. It ought to challenge us. It's challenged me this week and So I want want you to come with me as we have a bit of a look at these verses and and make sure we understand them and take them seriously. Verse 13, Matthew chapter 5, he says, You are the salt of the earth. And then in verse 14, You are the light of the world. Salt and light. Uh, What do these images do? What do they mean? Well, I don't think it's actually supposed to be rocket science. Um, I actually met somebody who kind of is a rocket science scientist at at supper. That was great. Um, but it's not, it's not that complicated. It's salt, right? It, it's, it's a distinctive flavour. It spices food up. It stands out, but it doesn't ruin the food. My grandma, bless her, sometimes accidentally adds cayenne pepper to her rock cakes instead of nutmeg. Kind of mucks them up. Salt doesn't... That's not the point of salt, but salt is it's noticeable um, and, and kind of makes things better. That's all Jesus is talking about. Well, maybe not all, actually, because in the ancient world... Um, salt was more valuable than it is to us um, and salt was the main means of preserving food. And so when he says you are the salt of the earth, it might also have had a sense of of giving life, giving health to things. I think that's what the image does. Salt is something that that is distinctive and that that brings goodness and, and health and life. Light, similarly, is something that stands out and brings goodness. It it's, it's beautiful, it brings warmth, it brings clarity, although I, I don't think we necessarily get that as much today because we just are hardly ever in the dark anymore, like really in the dark. There's just, it's really hard to get away from all the lights 
Um, some of you know Jeff Everett. He used to be at this church. He's gone to work at a church at West Pennant Hills. My wife saw him the other day and asked him how, how the transition had been from the city to the suburbs. You know what he said? He said, it's pretty dark up here. That's a funny comment, but I think it actually, maybe we, maybe we, do, we are missing something of the power of Jesus' image. Because darkness, real darkness is quite scary, actually. When you don't know who you are, it's disorienting. You don't know who's there. You can't find the way. And that's, you are the light of the world, says Jesus. There's a light in the darkness and it's you. I, uh, I think we need to take a moment just to kind of register how full on a thing it is that Jesus says. On the face of it, it's ridiculous. Because Jesus is not just saying something like, you know, you guys have a really legitimate place in this world. You guys have an important contribution to make. I mean, that might be true, but he's saying more than that. Because this is the kind of thing, as we saw in our Old Testament reading, this is the kind of thing the Bible normally says about God. Or maybe Jerusalem, when God fills it with his glory. The Lord, Isaiah said, will be your everlasting light. The Lord God being the light of the world, well, fair enough. But us? Jesus' disciples, this little band of people before him who their only qualification seems to have been they were happy to listen to him? Why does Jesus say this? Why does he call his followers the light of the world? Why does, why does he actually think they have that role to play? To understand that, we need to take a step back and make sure we've understood how Jesus understood the world and his own role within it. You see, Jesus believed that the world was a place of, of, of darkness, real darkness. Not just a place with a few problems that needed a bit more education, a bit more technology, but a place of darkness. A darkness that was the result of your and my and all humans, all humanity's refusal of God and the way we turn in upon ourselves and live in the centre of our own little worlds. That, according to Jesus, created a darkness which was very deep and thick. The world, according to Jesus, is a place desperately in need of light. Now, we, we don't need to have any doubt that Jesus un- understood himself first and foremost to be the light of the world. He was that light. As he said in John's Gospel, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. You see, Jesus knew that in him the power and beauty of God was breaking into this world and flooding it with light. And that on the cross, he would take upon himself all the world's darkness, all our self-centred refusal of God, and he would put it to death so that when he rose from the dead, he brought a new world with him, shimmering like a new dawn. That's how Matthew describes it just in the chapter before, in chapter 4, verse 16. He quotes Isaiah again and he says, if you want to just look back, Earlier on the page, he says, The people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. 
a light has dawned. Jesus knew himself to be the light of the world and yet, and yet, incredibly, from the beginning his plan was that this good news, this light would be made known not just from on high in some blinding flash but through his followers bringing the news about him into all the world. That's where Matthew's Gospel actually ends if we ever get there, chapter 28, probably not this year. His plan was that his light would be made known through those who believed in him, through their testimony about him and and lives that were lit up by what he had done. So Jesus tells his disciples that they are the salt of the earth and the light of the world because they are his plan for making known what God had done in him. They are to be the way in which his light is seen. Jesus' astonishing, terrifying, if you think about it, plan, it seems so risky, is that through them, through those of us who believe, other people would discover him. Now, getting that clear helps us know how to respond to our passage, I think. Because it helps us recognise our own significance without being able to take pride in it. I'll say that again. We can recognise our significance without being able to take pride in it. Because I take it that this is what Jesus wants his followers to do, right? This is why he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He wants us to get the way things are and to understand that we really do have a very important role to play. He doesn't want us to pretend we're not important. He doesn't want us to be coy and kind of go, oh, shucks, you know, our little lives don't really matter. Our little church doesn't really matter. This is no time for false modesty. Humility, yes. Humility, because it's not like there's anything we've done to be in this position. It's not like because we're extra special. It's not like we've got anything of ourselves to offer. We're only in this position because of God's grace. And the only thing we've got to offer is Jesus. He's the light that lights our lamps, if I can put it that way. And so humility, yes, but false modesty, no. It does no one any good to pretend you're not important when in fact you are. Let me say a couple of things about this. First, if if you're a follower of Jesus, can I urge you to to believe in yourself? Not in yourself, but believe this about yourself. Do you know what I'm saying? Jesus wants you to hear this word this evening. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Self-help gurus, you know, the the kind of thing where you get people and they they encourage you to have a kind of mantra to say to yourself, you know, I am successful, attractive, energetic, a jerk, whatever, you know. We got something better to say. It's a bit different, but it's better. We can say, "I'm I'm a sinner. Of myself, I have nothing really to offer. 
But God has been gracious to me and he has made my life count. I'm a part of something incredibly important. I am the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Now, that, if you get that right, it's not going to make you feel good about yourself. Right? That's not the point to make you feel oh, pretty impressed. Salt of the earth. Actually, if you, if you get it right, you see that you really shouldn't feel that way. But what it does do is it makes you take your life seriously. It makes you take the way you live before others seriously and I think Jesus wants us to do that. Second, though, uh, of course, it's not just us as individuals. Jesus means us together as well. He says, you plural are the salt of the earth. This passage reminds us, I think, that it's not really possible to be a Christian and not care at all about the church. Uh, Of course, this doesn't mean we all need to worry about particular organisations and institutions, although I think it's actually naive to think you can't do that. But Jesus is not saying the Sydney Anglican Church is the salt of the earth. Thanks be to God. Um, You know? But he is saying, in fact, you can't get round the fact that he's saying the church matters. His followers matter. Christians and churches disappoint us. I'm sure some of you know that all too well, but Jesus still says this. And if you're a person who's kind of been pretty negative about church, and you may well have really good reasons for that, but can I just encourage you to not forget what Jesus says here. Jesus wasn't talking to a bunch of perfect Christians when he says this. He was talking to people like you and me, people who are not perfect, people who are going to muck things up, who are going to say the wrong thing and who are going to let people down. And he still said, you are the light of the world. Thirdly, can I just speak to anybody here tonight who might not be a believer, who might not be a follower of Jesus? You've got lots to think about, but wow, that's full on, isn't it? Is that a storm or is it fireworks? Either way, it kind of adds an air of gravity to what I'm going to say. Um, and actually, this is, this is a pretty important thing to say. Those of you who are not believers, can I, can I just say, why not let this be the vision for your life? You have the opportunity to be a part of something incredibly beautiful here. This is, this is a, I mean, what else? What else can you be involved in that can really change the world? I mean, if you work really hard, you might, you might be able to be the change you want to see in the world as long as that change isn't actually that good. But you can't actually change the world. Not really. Not deeply. But he can. And with him, you can. Can I encourage you to think about getting on board this thing? Because you're able to be part of something wonderful and still take yourself seriously. When you're a Christian, you're able to be honest about yourself and and know your weaknesses and yet know that your life actually is a part of something beautiful. You are the salt of the earth, says Jesus. You are the light of the world. Friends, the world needs Jesus. 
That's why it needs you. That's why it needs us. This is no time for false modesty. But of course, when you believe that, right, it lays on you a pretty heavy burden, doesn't it? If we really are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, then we've got to make sure we're getting things right, don't we? We've got to make sure we're doing our job. It's a big responsibility. Now, I think we're right to feel this way, but we've got to make sure we don't make a mistake. And the mistake is to misunderstand what our responsibility actually is. And so to try to be salt and light in, in some way we've invented. Let me, let me put it this way. Our responsibility is not, to, is not to make ourselves salty, but to not lose our saltiness. It's to let our light shine, not to turn on the light. What the hell am I talking about? Um, that's fair enough if you're wondering that. Uh, it's not very clear. But I'm struggling to capture something important about the way Jesus describes things here. Did you see it um, in the verses that follow? You see, the things Jesus says in, in the, the sentences that follow his two big statements, they basically make one point. And that's that for the disciples not to have this effect in the world would be profoundly out of step with who they are. Have a look at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, he says, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Unsalty salt is just dirt. It's, it's useless. Now, exactly what Jesus meant here is a bit unclear because, of course, salt actually can't lose its saltiness. Um, for those who are interested, he may have been talking about how salt deposits in the Dead Sea could gradually become diluted and not be any good for salting. He might have been talking about that, but he might also have just been saying if, for some inexplicable reason, salt was suddenly not salty, then it wouldn't be any good. Kind of like, duh. Um, but that's his point. Salt has got to be salty. And so if his disciples are not having the effect of salt in the world, if they're not standing out and bringing blessing, then just everything's gone wrong. They're, they're out of step with what they're meant to be. They've totally missed the point. The statements about light are similar. Have a look at verse 14. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Duh! The whole point of light is for it to be seen, for it to illuminate. To try to stop that is like building a massive city on a hill and then figuring out how you can hide it. For the disciples to not be obvious in the world, not noticeable, for them to not be like a beacon in the world, that would be like putting a lamp, lighting a lamp and putting it under a bowl. It's not what's meant to happen. It would be stopping them from doing what they exist to do. What is natural for Jesus' followers is to bring light. So verse 16, in the same way he says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. What makes sense for Jesus' disciples is for them to stand out in the world and so to bless it, to live and act in ways that others see 
and that lead them to God. And what this means is that the responsibility we have as Jesus' followers is not to pursue some agenda of world transformation, some picture of what it looks like to be salt and light. Jesus' teaching here can so easily be kind of brought in to support some big plan to change the world or some church's plan to change the suburb. Now, there are lots of good things to think about. There are lots of good deeds to do. But Jesus doesn't tell us to become salt and light. He tells us that you are salt and light. Don't muck it up. Don't lose it and don't hide it. That's our responsibility. And that's the responsibility we've got to take seriously. So just to finish then, what does that look like? How do we not lose our saltiness? How do we not hide the light? Well, to answer, let, let me say two ways in which I think we can fail in that task. First, we can fail in this task when we lose our integrity as Jesus' people, when we stop being distinctive, when we stop being genuine to him. This is what happens when we forget that it's precisely our difference that we have to offer the world. The whole point of salt is that it doesn't taste like everything else. Uh, I don't think, you know, difference for difference sake is, is not what's at stake here. Jesus is not telling us all to wear, you know, obvious hats or something. Um, but we shouldn't expect it to be too long before we look a bit odd to people around us. You know what I mean? I've met Christians who are so concerned to remove obstacles from the gospel and to make it clear that Christians are normal that by the time they've finished, they've made so many concessions. There's nothing left. The fact is that if we are Jesus' followers, then God has shown us a new way to be in the world and it looks different. A way that looks as crazy as the Beatitudes we looked at last week. As we go on in the Sermon on the Mount next week, a few weeks till Easter, Jesus will teach us to to follow him means some pretty full-on things about how we relate to each other, about sex and marriage, about how we use our words and about how we relate to God. We are not doing what we have been called to do We're not doing actually what's natural for us now if we minimise these differences. That's the first way we can fail in our task. Second way, though, and this has to be said alongside the first, we can also fail in our task when we become disconnected from the world. You see, it's easy to be different when nobody who's not different, sorry, when nobody else is watching. It's easy to be distinctive when you're all being distinctive together and so you're indistinguishable. To push the metaphor a bit far, salt sucks on its own. It tastes bad. It's meant to be with food. You don't turn a light on and put a bucket over it. This is what happens when churches become a little world to themselves, happy with themselves but shut in on themselves. This is what happens when Christians gradually let all their other relationships slide and only ever spend time with church people. We're not meant to be like that. Lights 
are made to illuminate. Now, I don't, I'm not trying to just make anybody feel guilty about relationships and stuff. There's lots more to talk about and relationships today are quite complicated. There's lots more to say about many of these things. But let's make sure we don't end up hiding the light just by not being connected to anyone else. To both stay genuine as Jesus' people and to stay connected to the world. That's a tough gig. It's the kind of thing actually that could end us up living the kind of life the Beatitudes describe. But it is our responsibility because our Lord has called us to something incredible. To be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Let me encourage you to believe in this role, to believe that you have been called to be the way in which Jesus' grace and glory reach others. And let me encourage you to pray, to pray for the courage to let the light shine and the resolve to not sell out. And in fact, our Lord has already given us a prayer for just this purpose. Let's pray together. We're going to say the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. Amen. Uh, If you'd like to uh, talk to someone about what what you've heard tonight, uh, just to chat or otherwise to pray about it, um, then please head over that way after the service and there'll be some pe- someone there or a few people there to pray with you and talk to you about some things. Um, and may God shine his light through us so that we are salt and that we are light, so that we are distinctive and that people, the whole world will see the glory of our risen King through us. Let's stand. And sing of our God who is mighty to save. And also, uh, if you have, I didn't bring it up anyway, the communication card, please fill that in quickly if you haven't already. Drop that in when the things come around. And also, the Bible Bible study sheets, if you've got those, please drop them in in as well. And also, if you're giving money, if you're regularly here, and this is how you give money to this church and beyond, please also drop that in as well. Okay, please stand.